This is the Austin ISD X podcast, X as in X officio or unofficial. While we focus on the issues in the Austin Independent School District, the conversations we have about education are important to everyone. My name is Cuitlahuac Donatiu Guerra Mojarro. I'm a brown Mexican immigrant, naturalized US citizen. I have a brilliant partner. Together we have three beautiful children, all under the age of 11, two of which are in school right now at Con Springs Elementary here in our neighborhood in Northeast Austin. I'm also a 14 year classroom teacher and actively advocate against school closures and for reinvestment in education as a public service accessible to all students. And I'm Candace Hunter. I'm a black native East Austinite, wife and mom of a sixth grader at Lamar Fine Arts Academy and a senior at Northeast Early College High School. For 23 years, I've been an educator and public school advocate. I've worked exclusively with Eastside schools since 2007. Welcome, Jeff. Thank you for being here. Please introduce yourself. Oh, it's really awesome to be here. Hi, everybody. My name is Jeffrey Carlisle. I am a white queer educator, and I've been teaching for the last 11 years, nine of which in Austin at Kip Austin College Prep. Um, I am an alum of the Texas Teach Plus Policy Fellowship, and I am currently pursuing my Master's of Public Affairs at the LBJ School at UT Austin. Congratulations. That's a lot of hard work, but I'm so glad we'll have another advocate with all of this knowledge. So, Jeff, the first thing I know we're going to be talking about tonight is the State Board of Education. And for our listeners, can you tell us a little bit about what does the State Board do? Yeah, the State Board of Education is about a 14 or 15 member board that represents very large districts across the whole state of Texas. Um, And they get to make some of the broadest, most impactful decisions uh, about what goes on in education in our public schools here in Texas. And one of the most pressing matters is they get to make decisions about what exists in our standards. And the standards are the things that teachers and educators use to guide our practice in the classroom every single day. They decide what we talk about, what curriculum is available to purchase, what textbooks can talk about. So this has very wide ranging implications. It does more so. I know when it comes to textbooks that Texas sort of leads the way. So whatever we do, other states sometimes follow us. So this is super important. So what subjects right now are being impacted? Yeah, the two biggest areas that are going to be discussed in this next session happening next week are science uh, and the health standards, uh, which are specifically addressing sex ed. Okay, so let's take science first. It's just science, right? I mean, kids take science. What what can you do to science standards? It's it's like we all took it. So tell me what what is the big hubbub about? What's going on? Yeah, well, so the National Center for Science Education just gave our standards in Texas an F. Um, and our standards, we're one of only six states in the whole country to earn this incredibly low score because of our near erasure of the topic of climate change. As it stands right now, climate change only exists in one standard in a course that you don't even have to take to graduate from high school, earth science, which, you know, shout out to all the earth science teachers out there who are making sure that standard is getting taught. However, this means that we don't guarantee in the state that students learn about climate change before they graduate. 
Um, and so this is something that if teachers do want to be including climate change, they have to go out of their way to find ways to blend it into the curriculum. And it's not a mandate at this point. Okay. I think that Greta somewhere is like, she feels like someone just was walking <laughs> over her grave somewhere because I know. I, 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 yeah. Greta Thunberg right now would definitely be saying, how dare you? Exactly. So <laughs> I'm a parent of, like I said, a sixth grader and a senior. And, you know, my son's taking forensic science. My daughter's taking, um, you know, sixth grade science. What, how does, are we going to, is this going to impact everybody or is it just particular grades? Yeah, so the standards are for the entire K through 12 population, which impacts somewhere in the vicinity of about like 5 million students in this state. I hope that number's right. Um, and so this uh, climate change is something that obviously impacts every single person who lives in Texas. But as it stands right now, um, the, the Texas State Board of Education could do much more to make sure that all Texas students are learning about this subject. Excellent. Excellent. So I guess to kind of, so I can get my mind wrapped around it, we've got the State Board of Education. They set the standards, what, you know, other people may have heard referred to as the TEKS, the Texas Essential Knowledge of Skills. Um, mm -hmm. This first um, subject that we're talking about is science. And the thing that I think it's super important for everybody to know basically is being scrubbed away, like being erased, right? That this climate change is actually <laughs> happening. And we know now that grades K through 12 will be impacted by this. How long, like if we don't get this done right now, how long will we be living with these standards? Yeah. So the last time that the science standards were overhauled in this kind of a way was in 2009. So we're talking about a decade ago. There was a, a um, revision process that was called a streamlining, which really only combined standards and, and made things just fit a little better how teachers are already teaching the material. It wasn't large structural changes. So if we don't make sure that climate change is included in this round, we're probably not talking about this again until about 2030, if like the past precedent continues to be the norm. Okay, okay, excellent. So Queen yes. um, Luwak is going to jump in and he's yeah. going to take the second part and just kind of walk through, you know, what it's going on. And then at the end, guys, we're going to talk about what we should be doing. So we said that science was one area that was impacted and the other one was health and specifically mm -hmm. sexual education. And there's another erasure happening. Go ahead, Jeff. Let people know what's what they're the State Board of Education is discussing about our health standards that we teach in K through 12. Yeah. And, you know, I apologize. I forgot to mention this earlier. I also teach sex ed. So this is something that, like, I, I deeply care about. Um, and also as a queer person, this next part um, is something that I know even from my own experience as a public school student. Um, currently, the curriculum makes absolutely no mention of LGBTQIA plus identities. Um, and so this means that we're not defining what sexual orientation, gender identity, gender expression, uh, or these things would be. And then we're not also talking about the very specific uh, sexual health relationships um, and just life components that these students deserve to have um, uh, time devoted to in their classes. Uh, it's just completely omitted. Then the other component is that there previously in, a, in proposed standards was language about the definition of consent. And in the September State Board of Education meeting, a number of conservative board members removed the previously included language 
that explicitly named and defined what the concept of consent was. And this was like super inflammatory. It really misconstrued and demonized. They really misconstrued and demonized even what consent meant in that discussion. Um, so it's really important that we recenter what consent really is about and why it's necessary that students learn about it. So this is hitting really hard. This is written. This is hitting me really hard because I'm a science teacher too, and. Mm -hmm. I have privilege in that I am cishet, heteronormative, present the way I identify. And um, I, 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 felt like, I felt like maybe we should have started with uh, the sex ed instead of the science, because to me, this is an erasure of humanity. Like, like you, yeah. you can't, you, you, I don't understand how you can have a conversation about sexuality with, you know, our students and not let people see themselves in the same way that we want people to see themselves represented in all the other curriculums. So you mentioned that you lived this as well for as a public school yeah. student. So what does this do? Um, you know, just kind of like, uh, and it would, I'm going to be quiet now and just kind of like listen because <laughs> my space, right? Go ahead and tell us about yeah. your lived experience, uh, you know, with that yeah. curriculum. You know, the, the only time that a teacher ever acknowledged that people like me exist, and I'm talking about queer people, was my eighth grade science teacher, excuse me, sex ed teacher. So <laughs> literally the job that I have right now. And what she said was that gay men are the most likely to get HIV and you can die from HIV. That was it. That was where it ended. So the only message that was ever communicated to me in my entire K through 12 experience was hey, this thing that you are is probably going to get you a disease that you're going to die from. And that's it. That was the end of the discussion. And so I didn't understand it at the time, but now as an adult and as an educator, I've had a lot of time to reflect and kind of deconstruct how these experiences impacted me. And like the messages that I internalized during that time were that there is something about who I am that is taboo, that is inappropriate, and therefore we're not supposed to talk about it. Um, the other thing that I learned about was that um, my experiences and the needs that I had were irrelevant. So when I then entered into adulthood, I found myself not equipped or armed with information that would be able to keep me safe. So for example, there is this incredible pill called PrEP, uh, pre-exposure prophylaxis. Um, and what this pill is able to do is essentially make it such that anybody who takes it, gay, straight, or you name it, is 99%, has a 99% chance of not contracting HIV if exposed. And it's just this once daily pill. If this information were to be shared with students, we could end up preventing thousands of new infections every single year. But unfortunately, this information is denied to students. Um, and there was a board member in the last discussion who his argument for why uh, LGBTQIA plus issues don't need to be discussed in the curriculum was queer students can just get this information from discussing heterosexual relationships. And uh, speaking from my own experience, I uh, could not disagree more. I'm, I'm going to have to jump in here because, you know, this argument is played out over and I'm getting a little bit emotional. It's played out over and over again. So it's the same thing, right? So women enter classes and it's like, oh, 
but we mm. won't talk about any women because really the main focus should be mm. on the men and then children of color enter. And then it's like, well, we're not going to talk mm. about those people who, you know, we'll, we'll talk about the founding fathers and then you'll just understand it, you know, based in that context. And now I feel like queer folk are having to fight for the same space, right? Mm -hmm. to, to be identified because whereas my heart leaked on election day that my little black girl could see a black woman, it's the same, I feel like. If queer folk cannot see themselves, it's devaluing them, right? If I'm not in the curriculum, no. if I'm not in, if we're not reading, there's novels or whatever. And in Texas, we just seem to have this, I don't even have words for it, but I think Queen Lawak had the word originally, it's a lack of humanity. It's inhumane. Yeah. You know, it's interesting that you you bring up this as to kids and like the feelings that it leaves with people because uh, so Glisten uh, is the, it used to be called the Gay and Lesbian like Educator Support Network. They've uh, since uh, changed their name to be more inclusive of other identities. Um, but they put out a report about school climate here in Texas. And they find that like the, the experiences that students are having in schools is one that communicates to them that they are not valued and that they're not safe. Like 72% of students have experienced verbal harassment based off of their sexual orientation. Um, this is for LGBTQ students. 64% um, have experienced verbal harassment for their gender expression. And then many other students have also experienced physical harassment and assault. Um, we find that like many students are also identifying that their schools don't have um, anti-bullying policies, don't have supportive trans and non-binary student policies, don't have supportive administrators, um, or inclusive curriculum. And so what we're finding is like, I, I see a direct connection between the omission of queer people from the standards and the refusal to talk then about the conditions this creates in our public schools. Yeah, it's, a, it's an assault. My daughter has two friends um, that are in sixth grade that have been in elementary school to her and um, both identify as non-binary. And, you know, mm -hmm. I, I had to talk her through that because she was getting that nowhere else. And I said, mm. you know, I said the child's name and she goes, well, what does that mean? It means that today is Monday and she's still your friend, you know, or yeah. that they are still your friend. That's all it means. Uh, well, thank you for having that conversation. That's essential. <laughs> it's um, I like the I like the connections you're making. Um, and I'm thanking you all for uh, being open and candid about your experiences. Um, the connection I made is you talked about the direct link between the erasure of people's humanity from the curriculum and the school climate that results from that. And then I think just to round out our discussion and bring it back to the other uh, topic, we're also talking about the erasure of climate change. So mm -hmm. maybe today the <laughs> climate, right? <laughs> so uh, Jeff, I think there's, I think there's an, uh, I think when, when we get, when we get in our fields, right? Um, yeah. kind of want to direct that energy somewhere productive and so the, this is the drop a link section of, of the podcast so this is where we'll tell listeners that they better click this link uh they can click this link jeff and what's it going to do so that they can uh let their voices be heard by the state board of education regarding these two uh these two pieces of curriculum yeah so um we have a State Board of Education hearing happening next week um, to address these standards. And you know, thank 
Thank Greta Thunberg uh, that the Texas um, Freedom Network, incredible organization, has put out um, testimony guides for the science and the sex ed standards. And so um, we'll have a link there for you, but you can also head to their Instagram bio where they have a link for it. And in there, they have guides where they'll tell you, one, how to sign up to testify, um, which happens starting Thursday morning uh, at 8 a.m. all the way up to like Friday afternoon, I wanna say at about 5 p.m. This is an intentionally short window to limit the number of people testifying. Um, what they didn't anticipate was last time there were hundreds of people who signed up and they uh, ran beyond the amount of time they had allotted. Um, and then additionally, they have a rundown of the important information you need to know about these standards revisions. And then they have a guide for how to structure your testimony and which parts to highlight given your context. So if you're a student, a parent, an educator, or just a concerned citizen, they have um, important information that would be useful for you to bring up. Um, and so that I've used those guides myself to testify numerous times this year. And each time I have felt really prepared. Yeah, the last thing though, is that you only have two minutes. And so it's really important to come with your remarks prepared and really streamlined so that you get right to the heart of the matter because they're listening to a number of different people during that day and you have a limited amount of time. The dates are Thursday, November 12th and Friday, November 13th. So the urgency is now, there's a fierce urgency of now. And so just to, just to put the dates plainly out there for people listening right now, right now, that's the next thing you should do after you're done listening to this podcast is click, click yeah. find the link. Um, and just to add one last thing is the actual hearing then will take place on Tuesday, November 17th. Um, and so one of the cool things is if you sign up through TFN, um, the Texas Freedom Network, they have a Slack channel where they keep you up to date on like where they are in the testimonies and how much time you have before you mm -hmm. testify. Um, so it really feels like you're a part of a supportive network of people. So then you can tune in and hear yourself testify. Yeah, yeah. And it's given the way that COVID is working and how testimonies have had to change in this context, it can be a little complicated um, with like, when do I mute? When do I get off? Um, what, what do I need to have up? And so once again, like, having the Slack channel from T uh, the Text Freedom Network is really informative because they've done this a number of times. I'm not too good at the Slack, but we'll we'll put that link up there too. Um, Jeff, this is kind of like, I guess like my final, this, the, the, the final question to our co-host is always, uh, what do you want to speak on, right? And you came here to speak on the science standards, the sex ed standards, but you can keep it there if you want. You can speak on whatever topic you want. If I wanted to guide you, it'd be, it'd be, it'd be kind of just, I think I'd be repeated, repeating ourselves or just kind of summing up our entire conversation. Um, so I'll, I'll pose a question, like as a queer middle school science teacher with expertise in the classroom uh, and in the realm of public policy and through your lived experience, like what you, what do you think the standards should be? Like the guiding principles, uh, anything specific, like what do you want to see taught you, the and the person. So <laughs> part of what set me on this journey of wanting to testify and get involved was when I became a sex educator, you know, I wanted to become the teacher that I never had. Um, I know what it's like 
to be erased and not seen in the classroom and they have to hide and then to feel like I have to go somewhere else to be valued. Um, and that's actually what happened. I, I left in order to go to college. I went to Minnesota. Um, in the Texas Health and Safety Code, um, which are laws that the Texas legislature has set up to guide how we do all of our practices about sex ed, and this is separate from the standards, there is a provision that says that sex educators like myself are required to tell our students that not only being, that queer is, being queer is not only unacceptable from a public health and public opinion perspective, it's also a misdemeanor. And, and that, that, while that, was, that law about being a misdemeanor was struck down in 2004 by the Supreme Court in Lawrence v. Texas, it's still on the books. Um, there is uh, a representative in Houston, and I, I wish I could remember his name right now. His, his name is evading me. Um, he has, for like a number of sessions, has tried to get this out of committee to try and get this off the books. And unfortunately, these laws then, as we talked about earlier, determine what can be in textbooks. And so because the law says we need to tell students that being queer is illegal, that's part of why we can't even talk about it. And, and I, I, I get emotional when I think about it because like, can you imagine going through an entire education system that sends you the message that not only that your identity is not worthy of talking about, but it's actually wrong and illegal, like that is so harmful. Um, and I'm very thankful for people who push against this and are working to fight against it. But it's like, this is the state of things. In 2020, we're still having to fight for saying like, I, I'm worthy of existing. Well said. This is the Austin ISDX podcast, Hot Take and Reflection. Welcome, everyone. I have a lot of things on my mind today, but we're going to get right into it. Um, our first hot take is covering open learning and COVID. So I recently did an interview and I was asked a question like, what do you think about the first week back? And honestly, if I'm thinking on a scale of one to 10, I gave it a four. Are families who need the support getting what they need? Yes. At the same time, how high must their anxiety levels be, you know, around the notifications that we seem to be inundated with? And I unfortunately am a part of a Facebook group. So I don't just get the ones for both my kids' schools. I'm seeing them from like elementary schools and other middle schools and high schools. And so I just, I have so many questions about contact tracing. I will tell you that uh, earlier last week, the teachers at O'Henry, you know, took it upon themselves. I think they, it's eighth grade, took it upon themselves to write a letter because they felt so concerned that parents get the correct, you know, get information. And then um, I, I believe the school later sent out in, an email. I'm not sure. But um, I just feel like it's a lot going on, like this 48 hours. But if you weren't there on Friday, then it doesn't count because it's two days before. And here's my thing. If there's a kid sitting in class on Friday and that kid goes home Saturday and gets a test and they're positive. Okay. So yeah, they didn't come back to school on Monday, but what about all the people they sat next to on Thursday and Friday or, you know, the people that they engaged with 
So I just, I really don't have any questions. I will tell you that last week I got a notification that my son's high school football team, the entire football team, y'all, was um, quarantined, which was the right thing to do because a player on an opposing team was found to be positive. And so really there wasn't enough time for them to be symptomatic. So that was really smart of the school to say, everybody, there's an announcement off football players. Please come to the cafeteria and then say, you got to go home. That was smart. Um, but I just, I don't fully trust the dashboard that we have. I feel like the numbers are off. Um, it's supposed to be updated every day, but it seems like it's just not cool. And I don't know what's going on at Austin High. I saw some news about Blazer today. I'm just, I'm really concerned. And I really, here's what I want. I want for Alexandra uh, Copeland to create a parent's course on how contact tracing works to identify the individual who's in charge of that on every campus. Because the stories that I'm hearing coming out of schools, they're like, they're like divvying up a list and saying, you call this five, you call this five, and I'll call this five. That's not what we were told how that was going to look. And so I'm just real concerned about contact tracing. Um, like I said, we're going to be home for the fall just because I'm, I don't trust the system right now. Doesn't mean other people shouldn't. I'm just saying I don't. So with all of that, I think the thing that concerns me the most about COVID is not necessarily COVID, y'all. Honestly, it's communication. It's what I call piercing the veil. In all of the time that I've worked with AISD, I cannot get through the communications muck, right? Um, what I said all along is the district has got to communicate more often and more effectively. For example, on 11-5, um, last week uh, at 6.37, I received an open for learning email. Bing, I opened up my email box. It says, here's a letter to the staff. I open up the letter to the staff and there it is. And in the letter, there's a section that where the superintendent has written in and saying, wow, the cases are really good right now. Everything is flat. At the very same time, I'm looking at this cave view, um, uh, big giant like um, mast heading that says, Austin sees highest active COVID-19 cases since August 15th. I just, I really want to know why we don't know this. And so I, I want to tell Everybody who's out there getting the numbers, make sure you're getting your numbers from the right source, but also communicate with your schools. And if you're not getting it, then call central office and tell them, look, I heard this, I heard that. I need to hear from the horse's mouth what is going on. I think the district could stop a lot of hullabaloo if they would get out in front of it. I can think of three examples this year that they could have gotten out in front of it. The first is whether or not classified employees were going to receive uh, their pay. So everybody comes in, they talk for hours and hours, and the school board says, oh, no, of course we're going to pay them. Okay, the second thing is, our teachers come 11-2, going to all lose their accommodations, and the district, everybody comes in, they're angry, the district goes, oh, no, we've handled that. Just last week, when the superintendent was getting um, some more authority, everybody's up in arms, all this is going on. You know, is the board going to now have no power? Is the superintendent going to have all this massive amount of power? They come out of uh, the meeting and then they say, well, let us explain to you how this works and what goes on. Why was that not a before thing, right? Let's counterreact it. And so I really feel like my message to AISD right now is, look, y'all, get out in front. Um, don't bury the lead. And, and then people are speaking with their feet doesn't seem like the school is making it easier or making people feel safer. So what's the latest on 
uh, enrollment in Central Texas districts. So you said it. People are voting with their feet. Um, the population of Central Texas is actually growing, but parents are not sending their kids to public schools. Austin ISD is down 5,661 kids. Uh, Leander ISD is down 1,113 kids. Round Rock ISD is down 2,552. Um, Hayes Consolidated is down 246. And the smallest number, and I want to know what it is y'all doing out there, is Pflugerville. They're down 110. Um, during Monday's board meeting, the superintendent was hopeful that the 5,600 kids that have left us, those parents are like, hey, I'm waiting for a good break. And maybe like at the winter break in January is a good time to come back. But she was very honest in saying that if we don't get those kids back in January, chances are we're not going to get them back this year. And I have to tell Dr. Ellis Holday, you know, I'm a parent. I'm not a superintendent, nor do I do a bunch of research, but I can tell you what makes good sense. And if I'm a parent and my pre-K or my case, my kinder student is in a place where they're comfortable, why would I uproot them based on loyalty? Right. And so I think if we don't get those kids back in January, we ain't going to never see those kids. They might come back in junior high or they might come back in high school. But traditionally in Austin ISD, middle school is where we start losing kids. That's when kids start popping the charters and popping out, going to other districts. There's also when white flight happens. Oh, for sure. Yeah, white flight east to west, white flight to the magnets. My hot take is on a piece of news from last Thursday, November 5th. When Mike Morath, Commissioner TEA, um, testified uh, in front of the Legislative Budget Board, he's basically asking for more money. And um, one of the reasons that he gave for needing more money, besides the obvious, was data that showed that students of low-income families are being most impacted uh, by the pandemic. And so, you know, we need more money. Um, so I got a couple of takeaways. Uh, the good, well, it's a good thing that TEA is asking for money. I also want to not forget about the federal funds, the CARES Act that the state, state kept away from schools this past summer, mm -hmm. uh, supposedly to balance the budget. And now, you know, they still want to cut stuff. Okay, we're cutting and during a pandemic. Cool. Uh, the troubling part is, is the why and the how too, right? So for me, the why and the how comes down like this. The, 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 the study, the why, right, was a was a slide about math coursework completion, and and I tried digging around at the legislative budget board and uh, emailed a couple of reporters to see what happened because I couldn't find a, the the study that he lift that he put out there. Just like a single slide that had math coursework completion, and so I'm like, okay, I want to see the numbers you're using because you're you're saying this is so we can improve the. Uh, most impacted students in our pandemic. Okay. So right away, I'm like, okay, this sounds like what, you know, drive by or, or, or passerby equity. This, I don't, I don't even know. I'm just, I'm just suspect. This is, there we go. Mm. So this is just sus, right? <laughs> um, so if this is being done in the name of low income and black and brown indigenous and immigrant students, uh, because they're falling behind. That troubles me a bit. I mean, that was true before the pandemic. It's also true that in education, Texas is underfunded. Um, you know, so so, so this, tell, tell the legislator, HB3 or HB5, or I can't remember which one was. It was good, but it's not good enough. We're still really far behind in per pupil funding in Texas, as far as the states go. So we got to pick things up. So, 
You know, and the same thing gets also said about reopening. We have to reopen to help those that are falling behind. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's why I wanted to talk about that metric of what do you mean by falling behind here for a bit? Like, first, let me say there's a lot of data and a lot of studies that show that black and brown, indigenous and immigrant students and families are less likely to want to send their kid back into the building. So I kind of want to interrogate that as to why. You know, why do families choose not to return? A big reason is safety. Right. Because you also got to ask the question, who's most impacted uh, by this pandemic? And it's those same populations. So both pre and post COVID, I'd say, look at who look, look at look at why maybe they don't want to bring the kid back. Um, And then and then understand that they their needs then might be virtual. Right. That might might, might be a need. And you got to you got to speak to that need and work to that need, not dictate it and say, no, your kids falling behind. And use sus data. Ha! Use sus data. That's going to be the thing, right? Because <laughs> now I'm going to point you all to Dallas ISD, which got in the headlines out there uh, with this with this headline that students suffer horrifying loss during pandemic. New test suggests, right? So let's unpack that, right? So what does the article say? Well, like it says in the headline, the data is bad, right? For the most at-risk populations, the ones that were already behind, falling farther behind, bad test results. What tests are we talking about? We're talking about the MAP test. It's given by an organization called the NWEA. So let's break it down. NWEA is a research-based, not-for-profit organization that supports students and educators worldwide by creating assessment solutions that precisely measure growth and proficiency. Uh, there's more to that, but I mean, like, nonprofit. Okay, cool. Um, the industrial complex is alive and well. They create assessment solutions. They don't create assessments. They create assessment solutions. So they, they're getting paid right? Nonprofit or not. And then they do this map test. And the map test is a the most trusted and innovative assessment for measuring achievement and growth in K through 12, 12 math, uh, reading, language, usage, and science. Okay. Uh, people who know this map test, and I have some familiarity with it and live through this with my kindergartner, this is like a pretty involved test. And administering at the beginning of the year is, you know, good practice, right? Get a diagnosis. Are we testing too much? Probably. Are we paying for this test? Yes. Yes. This is money. And there's some money. There's a lot of money involved here, but you got to understand that Austin ISD um, chose not to use the test to the extent that they had before. They um, just eliminated kinder map growth beginning of year. They're going to use a screener. Uh, they extended the amount of time um, that that you have to give the test. Austin ISD zagged, Dallas zigged, and you know <laughs> <laughs> what Dallas got was supposedly a measure of academic progress, right? What they supposedly got was data that tells them how much students have fallen behind since they were last in the building or not in the building. And it's a little sus when you got to administer this test over Zoom, right? Or, or however you even did it, Austin ISD try to not force people to do it. And in my experience, like that first like few weeks of virtual learning, we had small group instruction that was real dope. And then the teacher was like, well, we, we, we might need to give these tests. And so for like a week there, it was interrupted. And we didn't have small group instruction because she was given tests. And then Austin ISD like changed their mind because they realized that this is just messed up to try to give this 
test and try to use this data. So when Dallas ISD gets in the news for this horrible data, you, you really lack that context. And that article lacks that context because it doesn't say um, until the very end, right, that this was that this this is the this this map test is relatively new in that district. It was given for the first time last year in Dallas ISD, but to a much smaller group, right? So they just got this test, and so they themselves are like, "We don't have very good data," but the headline still says they're falling behind. Okay, I'm just trying to pause because, like, maybe got the screaming died down. I don't know if we're gonna pick it up, but <laughs> I, I got I got one more thing to connect that to, and that's this last headline, which is that. TEA, in all their wisdom, is changing the guidelines Again. or amending them um, to, to allow ISDs or LEAs or whatever acronym you want to call it, people running your school, that they can force kids back who are struggling. So we talked about, you know, the lack of reimagining education, the grading, the like expectation of workload. And I know you got two cents about how much screen time Dr. Ellie Salas said is good for kids and not good for kids. Um, but essentially, T and I don't know if anyone's actually going to do this, but just think about what TEA is allowing here. If they're saying, if you define a kid as struggling because you used some sus test and some sus data and you aren't supporting kids' needs um, in terms of their virtual education and you aren't trying to do better in that realm, you could go ahead and make them come back into the building or I don't even know what happens after that, like charge them with truancy or just push them out. So that 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 kind of makes that kind of like rings alarm bells for me because now you're like saying, hey, we need more money to continue pushing people out and make sure that money gets directed to wherever these families go since their uh, public neighborhood local schools ran them out for not being flexible and meeting their needs. So I don't know if I'm, I feel like I'm a crazy person connecting dots, but those are my three pieces of hot take. Um, and and just trying to let people know that TEA is asking for more money. They're claiming it's to help people who are struggling the most. The you know metric they're using for that is sus. We're overusing that. And my my middle school students are gonna be rolling their <laughs> eyes. And then and then like you know now you can use this sus data to force kids back into the building. And if they don't want to come back, they will take their daily allotment to some other place that may not be a public school, maybe a private school, maybe a not another nonprofit, right? Like the NWEA that's that's given out this map test that is that has school districts honoring or not honoring that contract in one form or another. I don't know. You know, well, it's maybe I'm drawing too many dots, but <laughs> what do you think? When we have when TA is saying you can force so we we kind of define racism as like right those predictable outcomes. If you do it and you know who's not going to be successful Right. That's systemic. Right. We got to fix that. So to, to me, I'm, in my mind, I'm like, so you're saying struggling kids can be forced back. Well, who are the kids that struggle? I wonder. So who is going to be pushed back? Is, are these the same people that have refused to send their kids back already? And so I, my conspiracy theory mind is is clicking. But honestly, I wonder because I, I just remember reading about the. Um, the superintendent in San Antonio who said we prepared for our BIPOC kids to come back and they didn't. And the reason they didn't is because they don't trust the, the system. They don't trust us for the health of their children. And now I look and I say, so now the state is simply saying, well, if they're really struggling, you know, struggling, wink, wink, 
you can bring them back anyway. You can force them to come back. You can deny them virtual edu- virtual learning. If if the state, I feel like if you're like, what's the solution, right? We, we're complaining. If the state wanted to put those who needed the most help first, then they would open the schools only for those that need the most help. Or they would at least allow and empower school districts to control the reopening in such a way that convinces parents that they can be safe. Um, but when you say, oh, you can have 50% capacity, go for mm-hmm. it. Or, uh, anybody who wants to come back can, can now come back. Like, come on. Like, if, the, if, you, if you tell parents anybody could come back and they think everybody will come back or a lot of people will come back, then, then you know, you're, you're, you're cruising for a bruising or something, right? You're, you're asking for people to walk out and then that, that, that connects that dot, right? That's, that's what unfortunately is the education policy, a defunding of public education. And that's why we do this podcast because we want to advocate for the reinvestment in education as a public service accessible to all. And it's hard to do that. Excellent. So you use the 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 um the new colloquialism of that's sus. Well, I'm gonna use an old colloquialism that my granny Ray used to say. Um, TEA is talking out of both sides of their mouth. So then let's get into the reflection, uh, an election reflection, uh, because we did a lot of work as a podcast on getting all these candidates interviewed. We made picks. There was a vote. There was a result. Um, and so we are going to um, say congrats to Kevin Foster. He ran unopposed, but we should congratulate him anyway. Um, I will say that even me. though he ran opposed, he still did all the work, right? He still worked. He still got out. He still met people. He still did all of the same things, went to the forums. So I, I, I kind of, I think he's going to be the kind of guy, I know he's going to be the kind of guy that we're looking for. No shade, Dr. Foster. I'm sorry if I, <laughs> if I came across like a jerk. Uh, yeah, you did do all the things. You did do all the things. Um, and then Ophelia Zapata has got deep grassroots. And I think the voters in District 2 made it overwhelmingly clear that, um, you know, public education activists and nerds and classroom teachers, which kind of describes me, maybe a little bit you, we can, and Education Austin and all the publications can pick who they think would be the best, but in the end decided that Ophelia Zapata should represent them. And I'm going to trust them. I'm going to trust Ms. Zapata because I talked to her. We talked to her. I think she's a great person. I think she's deserved the, the, the win that she got, the electoral win that she got, because it's just playing in the numbers when you get 60% of the vote in a three-person race like that. That means that uh, the people have spoken. And, um, you know, I had my reservations. I think I still do. But I know that what she's doing is, is she's representing her community. And that's plain and clear. And so the agency and the trust is with her um, and 100% faith in that. And, you know, shout out to John McKinnon Gonzalez and Andy Anderson for uh, stepping up and being part of the democratic process. Mm-hmm. I admire people who run. Uh, you know, I don't have I don't have, you know, the guts to do that yet. Maybe not now. Nope. And then <laughs> people maybe I've heard of them background. Why? Um, and then. Um, we got two runoffs. Candice, what's good? So um, I have, you know, I've been saying in November, I was really going to have where I wanted to take our listeners and move them uh, from being advocates to activists. And I really think that um, both of our 
our calls tonight. One saying, hey, go talk to the SB um, EOC. Go ahead and talk to the State Board of Education. And then also my next call to action is going to be to do one thing. I don't care what that thing is, but to do one thing to support our candidates and to say, hey, I'm going to make a phone call. I'm going to tell 10 friends. I'm going to send 10 texts. I'm going to post it on my Facebook, my Twitter, my IG. I'm going to do all those things, but to take one action that moves us forward. We talked earlier about down ballot races having such a poor turnout and down ballot races, you know, people are just like get to the bottom and like, ah, I'll just pick a name I've seen on a sign outside someone's door. I think we got a bit past that in this part of the election, but it is not over for District 5 and at large District 8, which means everybody who is listening to my voice and you live within AISD, um, our borders, that you can vote for place eight. And then those who live in Southwest Austin can vote for place five. Um, we'll bring, you know, we'll make you a prize of any candidate forums for them to better distinguish themselves uh, among the final two. But um, you know who we picked. We picked Noelita Lugo and we picked Lynn Boswell. Still believe in them and really want to, you know, be part of the group that helps push them across the finish line. Uh, yeah, I'm still, I'm still in it to win it with Noelita and Lynn. Um, I hope that Jared and the people that supported Jared will come out and vote for Noelito because Jared endorsed her. And I think that Piper coming out and endorsing Lynn makes that plain. Um, we kind of, for my, my opinion, we kind of split the progressive vote, right? So mm -hmm. there's a status quo establishment vote. And then there's people who want to see a change from the way things have happened. And... I think it's plain in the runoffs who represents, you know, establishment and who represents, you know, a fresh face and a change. So I hope people make a plan to vote in the same way. I hope people have energy. I hope people help the campaigns uh, get some energy and turn out the vote and that people make their voice heard. And uh, in my opinion, vote for uh, Noelita and for Lynn. Other than that, that's our, that's, I guess, like the reflection is the, the ending of the reflection might then be. That we're mashing together our two uh, formats, right? We 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 did a a deep dive with Jeff about the really important um, decisions being made at the state level, and giving people some actionable items there. And then the action item in our reflection is go vote. It ain't over. We made it to the playoffs. No, no, it's time. It's time to win. It's time to bring home. It's time to bring home the championship. I don't know. The sports analogy fails. We should probably cut that out. <laughs> Cut that okay. That's been a hot take and reflection. Thank you for choosing to spend your time with us learning more about education. And as always, stay tuned for more of our hot take on the latest education news and a reflection on our work. We'd love to hear from you about our podcast. You can find us across all social media and podcast platforms at AISDXP. To support the work we do, you can become a patron at patreon.com slash AISDXP. To invite others into the conversation, please remember to like, follow, and share.